Hi guys, this is Safa Abdelhakim. I'm a neurology resident, PGY2, rising PGY3 at Yale Neurology. Uh, welcome back guys um, to neurology exam prep from Yale University. Um, today we're taking the opportunity to walk through a very common presentation in the emergency room and something that all neurology residents are involved in, especially that we have new PGY2s uh, joining the neurology community. Um, so we'll, we'll do the common presentation of a stroke code and as well as status epilepticus. Uh, I think that would be very beneficial and we just have to be mindful that there's some institutional differences. This is how we do it in Yale. And I have with me here our program director, Dr. Jeremy Moeller, who's gonna um, help me get through the topics. Yeah, and I have to say that I am not a, uh, a stroke neurologist. Uh, we always have to have the disclaimer that uh, what we're talking about is specific to practice in our institution and that there is some variability in practice, but that we will be talking about general standard of care and, and uh, generally evidence-based uh, treatment of acute stroke. So Safa, um, let's talk through a case as if a brand new second year neurology resident for the first time is going to the emergency department because of a stroke alert. In our institution, we call them stroke codes. They can be called code strokes, all sorts of other names for them. But essentially, a pager goes on, goes off, uh, and a patient has come in with new neurological deficits. And let's say in this case, uh, this is a patient who was brought in because they had right-sided weakness and some language dysfunction. So what are, what are the, talk me through how you're dealing with that type of case. Absolutely. So first of all, the first stroke code that goes off on the pager um, is very terrifying, totally acceptable. Um, just accept the feeling and go through the experience and you'll get so much better. Uh, I remember I dropped my coffee the first time the pager went off um, and just ran frantically. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and then walked in the room and didn't know exactly what I'm doing. Uh, but that's why this podcast would be helpful. So the first thing I do is when I walk in the room, um, I like to hear the last known normal. First thing, I eyeball the patient as I'm hearing what the last known normal is um, and whatever else EMS has to say. Uh, and the reason why you really want to be focusing on the last known normal is it's within the time frame of TPA, you move much, much faster. Uh, once I hear that they're within the TPA window, my speed is much faster. If I don't have a last known normal, um, I have someone work on it. Because if, if I hear a convincing story from EMS that's confirmed and I know exactly when the last known normal is, great, I move on, everybody's moving faster, although time is brain in any case, but it's just much more different um, if it's a TPA candidate. If I don't, then right away, I try to have someone assist me in calling a family, getting in touch with someone reliable to get that clarified uh, while, I do, while I go ahead and do my exam. The second question that I always ask after clarifying the last known normal is whether the patient takes anticoagulation or aspirin becomes important for how you manage the case moving forward. And we also have to be mindful that there are some wake-up strokes. Um, those happen very commonly while you're on night call. Um, you get that 5 a.m. code with someone saying, I went to bed at 9 p.m., uh, feeling fine, woke up with that deficit. And your last known normal uh, in that circumstance is when they went to bed. And if you do not know when they went to bed, if they're aphasic, that's exactly why you want to have a reliable historian so crucial for your stroke code. Uh, and getting that fast is, is very important for how you proceed. So you get the information about the last known normal. What are the next steps that you take uh, as a neurology resident? 
the, the second thing I'm moving on to is um, the, the two clinical pieces of information that you want to have from EMS is their uh, SBP and their blood sugar, their finger sticks. Um, because if they're coming in with deficits and their sugars are 30, uh, then I'm less inclined um, to, uh, obviously they're, they're, they're excluded from TPA and we'll get to that in a little bit, but also um, they make you feel like maybe the clinical syndrome you have is not exactly a stroke and could be confounded by something else like hypoglycemia. Um, and then just to, just to mention, uh, we're using uh, American units, milligrams per deciliter. So a, a, a sugar of 30 is very low. Uh, that would be equivalent to a, a blood glucose lower than uh, two millimoles per liter if you're, if you're talking in, in international units. So again, uh, moderate to severe hypoglycemia, and you can get uh, focal neurological deficits that look exactly like a stroke in the context of hypoglycemia, and, and that needs to be corrected before you can determine whether somebody truly has an acute neurological deficit. And then you mentioned SBB, and I think you mean uh, systolic blood pressure. So we want to know uh, that early on because that may need to be adjusted to fit the criteria for, for administration of uh, IV TPA, right? Exactly. So for example, if I have a patient with language deficit right-sided weakness within TPA, uh, within the window of TPA and their systolics are 230s, then quickly I'm alerting um, pharmacy that, hey, we, we need to get like um, um, uh, a drip, um, you know, cardism drip or sorry, nicardipine drip or something to, to kind of adjust that while I come back from the scanner, or maybe I can take the drip and go to the scanner, um, stuff like that. Uh, and we'll go a little bit more into the details of what the systolic blood pressure needs to be and how to go about it. Um, the other thing that's important to know for the systolic blood pressure, especially if the story is not convincing for a large vessel occlusion, um, is it's a supportive evidence that this is likely an ischemic event. For example, if someone is coming with uh, dysarthria, slurring of speech, which is very nonspecific and could be in other um, settings uh, that are not related to ischemia. But if their systolic is 200, um, then I worry that maybe, maybe there is some hyperperfusion to the brain. If their systolic is uh, 120, then, you know, just a, a little supportive evidence. It's, it, it does not exclude a stroke, but it's just uh, important to bear in mind. Yeah, the, the vast majority of people with acute stroke will have an elevated systolic blood pressure in the acute phase. And so it can be an extra clue when you have these nonspecific symptoms, as you're saying. Um, tell me about what happens next. So you've gotten the basic information, the blood glucose, the systolic blood pressure, um, and the person's uh, rolling into the emergency department. What do you do next? What I do next is I try to get a story from the patient if I can. Obviously, I need to be mindful of the time. Um, at Yale, we have a very uh, strict um, system and reward system for getting the patient to the scanner as soon, you know, as, soon as possible. Um, so I'm always in a hurry. And I start by saying that um, just to put the patient at ease um, if, if they're very with it and, and get anxious because that can confound your exam as well. Um, so it's okay to spend you know, your two minutes actually talking to the patient and explaining what's going on and uh, getting a little bit of a clearer story from them. Because sometimes they can tell you everything. Um, so that, that's going to be my first thing. And then right away I move in. As they're talking, I'm already scoring them for NIH scale, um, stroke scale. Um, I'm already paying attention to their language, which is part of our, um, I'm not going to go in details about what the scoring is, but I'm going to tell you how I go about it and what the order is. So as they're talking, I'm already scoring them for the SAR 3 or not. And then I'm already scoring them for orientation. Um, and then after that, I ask them the specific questions that we typically ask, which is what's the age and what's the month. Um, if they were not able to, to demonstrate to me that they're very oriented, 
After that, I ask about the um, following commands, which is make a fist and open, and um, close your eyes and open. And um, I move on to my um, gaze. If they have a gaze preference, uh, then I want to make sure that they can cross midline. Um, because that, that part becomes very important if you want to think about a seizure as part of the differential. Um, and then we go, I go ahead and I start face to foot. So I'll do, and that's how I remember it myself. So I get the mental status out of the way and then I start doing my motor um, and, and um, head to toe really quickly in your NHSS card. And, and, uh, and you would recommend that residents carry a card around that has the NAHA uh, National Institutes of Health stroke scale on it, uh, at least early on? Absolutely. After that, it's going to be very ingrained in your brain. You're not going to need a card. Uh, actually, I just lost, lost my stroke cards uh, and somehow got through a week of nights without them. Uh, not that I advise that, but I'm just saying, you know, by the end of PGY2, you're very comfortable with them. In the beginning, you really want them in your bag. Uh, we have some clipped ones that we attach to our bags, but you can do whatever variation you want. Um, but the, I also like to just have a way of remembering it because you don't want to be a neurologist in the room and because you can't find your sheet, you can't move on. Um, so I'll, I'll do the facial palsy. I'll uh, make sure that their face is symmetric. Um, and then you have them raise both of, your arm, both of their arms up. You don't really need the palms facing up. That's not part of your NIHSS. Um, it's sufficient to see if they have drift while their, their palms are down. Um, and you score them accordingly, whether it's drift or drift to bed, or whether they can even do an anti-gravity effort. Um, same thing for the legs. For the arms, you want to have them hold it five sec uh, 10 seconds. Um, and for the leg, you want to have, have them hold it five seconds. And um, if a patient is not cooperative, it helps actually to count with them because they, they, they're likely to know when, when the end is and, and be more cooperative with you. Uh, very important to encourage a patient to be cooperative. You might overscore them and it will confound your story and it will take up from your time because you'll need to do serial exams. So from the first shot, just explain to the patient, hey, I'm worried about you. Please try to give me your best shot. Um, and then you move on to your finger to nose finger um, and then the sensory. Um, the sensory, the NIHSS actually does touch and pinprick. Um, sometimes you don't have time to do a pinprick. What I do is just because it's a similar um, pathway, I will use um, colds. So if I have my tuning fork, and not that I recommend that, obviously the best is to do what's exactly indicated, but you can use your um, tuning fork as a temperature test. That's great. And it sounds like <laughs> by now when you're doing one of those examinations, how long would that take? I typically... I'm in the scanner within five minutes of the patient, within the stroke code. Five minutes, I, I already know my last known normal. I get a very brief story from the patient and I'm already assessing them. And um, if for some reason there was a delay, um, I sometimes leave a part of the exam to do on my way to the scanner. So if, if I still have my, my language stroke cards to go through, sometimes I'm doing that as I'm walking. Not that I encourage this, but sometimes I've had situations where I really want to give TPA within the 30 minutes just because we get a pin and an award <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll do my best to kind of get that going. And then uh, we're getting our uh, patients to a CT scanner for a CT head and a CT angiogram of the head and neck. Uh, and um, and at our institution, we do not wait for the creatinine as long as we don't have any history to suggest that somebody has renal dysfunction. Is that right? 
Exactly. And I definitely have some tips to clarify about that. Um, the first one is as a, uh, as a neurologist leading a stroke code, you're going to trust, but you're going to verify. Whatever EMS say, you're going to verify. And whatever the ED does, you're going to verify. So my um, approach to this is if the story is very convincing for a large vessel occlusion or for a stroke, then um, unless the patient is in like kidney failure and not dialyzed, you know, like a very odd situation, then that's when I would think about what alternatives, although uh, my priority right now is the brain. Um, if the patient ha doesn't have a convincing story and has a CKD or like really poor creatinine, then also that's another situation where you want to discuss a bit further before they're just giving them a bolus of contrast. Other than that, if you don't have a creatinine, if, if, um, if, you, don't, if you don't have a last creatinine in your system, I go for the CTA, uh, even if the story is not 100% convincing. That's my style. Um, as far as the CT perfusion, which is also part of our um, protocol, you know, something that we use often in our institution, I'm not sure about others, uh, that's going to be if I suspect a large vessel occlusion. And the CT perfusion study is going to make us uh, help us make some decisions about whether or not we might proceed to thrombectomy or other endovascular treatment of, uh, of, of stroke. Uh, if we think uh, that uh, somebody has uh, an area of brain at risk that has not completely infarcted, uh, then that might be an indication for uh, doing, uh, doing thrombectomy or other endovascular procedures. Absolutely. The other, the other time, it also becomes very beneficial if you don't have a clear last known normal. Um, it helps you, especially if there's a large vessel occlusion, it helps you age the stroke a bit better. Uh, Safa, how do you go through the CT head? So what, what, what's your approach to looking at the CT head and the CTA? And it's hard to describe this on a podcast, I realize, but generally sort of talking through how you look at that as a resident in an acute stroke code. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, and again, this is more helpful tips for, for our residents who are starting here. Uh, I make sure that I have a computer in the CT scanner while I'm with the patient, because then you can take a look at a previous imaging they've had. It helps put things in context uh, as they're kind of getting situated for the scanner. Um, um, the way I look at the CT head, first, I also always alert the tech to let me know when the CT head is up because, you know, sometimes you miss it and you're like, well, where is it? Where did it go? Um, and the way I look at the CT head, I approach it uh, outward in uh, because I don't want to miss a subdural. I don't want to miss, you know, just because I'm worried about a left MCA. I don't want to just jump to the parenchyma and miss whatever else outside the, the brain itself. Um, um, and then I kind of just go... Um, in, I, I assess the cortex, I, and then I assess the, the, um, um, the subcortical structures. Uh, I look for a hypodensity or a hyperdensity. As a matter of fact, hyperdensity first, because a big goal of why they get a CT head is you, you want to rule out hemorrhagic stroke. Um, and then, you know, hyperdensity jumps at you much more than a hypodensity. Uh, and sometimes you need a second look to just make sure you've really evaluated for a hypodensity. The other thing you look for in acute stroke is a loss of gray white matter differentiation, which could be a sign in an early stroke. Um, if you already have a hypodensity, you worry that you, you've already kind of missed the boat. Um, the last thing I look for is sometimes some vessels light up if there's a very big clot. Um, so you have like your right MCA signs, your left MCA signs. If there's a clot really obstructing the flow, it will show as a hyperdense uh, signal um, that's in the vessel and that can be helpful as well. And, and, and it's, it's good to emphasize that uh, a couple of points that you said. One is we're really, for acute stroke, we really are 
making sure that somebody doesn't have a hemorrhage uh, in order to make sure that it's safe uh, to administer thrombolysis. If we do see early CT signs of uh, ischemia, that's fine, uh, although the vast majority of the time we don't. Uh, and it, certainly if it's early on in the stroke, we wouldn't expect to. Uh, but as you said, there are, uh, there are hypodensities or loss of gray-white differentiation that can help uh, in that circumstance. I like your approach of looking at the outside in because uh, it's probably easier when you're looking at the brain parenchyma uh, to ignore or miss things like subdural hematoma or subarachnoid hemorrhage. And obviously those would both be contraindications to thrombolysis as well. And, and I wanted to emphasize the point you already made, which is if the patient has previous imaging can be extremely helpful, especially if you're seeing hyperdensities that happen to be calcifications that have been there for a long time or hypodensities that are old infarcts or old traumatic brain injury that's not anything new. It's really important especially in an aphasic patient or a patient that can't give you much, much of a history uh, to see what's new and what, what has been there all along. Absolutely. Um, it also makes you um, uh, makes your presentation to your attending because you're going to call the attending very shortly to staff the patient and you really want to kind of encapsulate the story as fast as possible because you need your attending on board already. Um, you know, here they'll start messaging you and, and, and you kind of need to uh, put a story together to convince whoever is going to do a TPA or a thrombectomy to go for it. Um, so you don't want to miss out on valuable time. And then on the CTA, what, what are the things you're looking for on that? So for the CTA, obviously, you're looking for a large vessel cutoff. And, and, and there are a lot of stuff that I'm going to go through that I need to um, evaluate while I'm looking at CTA. You, it's not possible to go through all of this in, your, in the beginning of the year when you're looking at the CTA very quickly as the tech is crawling through it. Um, so what I'm gonna focus on is your first look, um, is you already know that this person doesn't have a, a, a bleed. You're looking for a vessel cutoff, a large vessel cutoff rather. Um, people might have distal branch occlusions, which we'll get to in a little bit, but you really wanna see, um, you wanna track your, obviously based on the syndrome, um, I focus on which vessels I'm going to take a look at in the first um, look because it's going to be very difficult to assess posterior circulation and anterior circulation and distal branches all in one look. So if I know this person is coming with a left MCA syndrome, um, I'm really just watching the MCA. Um, obviously, you don't want to miss like a big occlusion in the um, ICA terminus or in the um, proximal ICA. So you kind of, the way I systematically go uh, for it is you track the carotids coming up from the arch and uh, the aura and uh, you keep, you keep uh, just, you keep your eyes on it as they're scrolling um, for an anterior circulation stroke. Um, and then you, you, you look at it when it, um, when it goes into the cavernous portion, because sometimes you can miss clots there. And then as it branches out into your MCAs, and then um, later when you want to take a very thorough look at it, um, the sagittal view is very helpful for the uh, distal branches of the MCA, uh, like your M3 and M4, and even your uh, superior division, in, your superior branch and your inferior branch of the MCAs. Um, if you're worried about a posterior circulation stroke, you obviously track the verts, the vertebral arteries as they join the basilar, and you follow the basilar all the way up um, to make sure that um, the, 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 um, you assess the PCAs as well, the posterior cerebral arteries. And, and, um, and we should say that our, our institution, uh, we also have a radiologist who's available to look at that, uh, that image uh, study uh, quickly and right away, but 
um, for learning purposes and also just to uh, make sure that we have lots of redundancy in the system, it's very important that we look at those images ourselves. And I think every resident has had the experience of uh, not looking as carefully at an image at one time or another and relying simply on the interpretation, which is somebody who doesn't have the clinical information that we have and, and missing something that is seen in retrospect. So it's Absolutely. really important for us to, to, to us to look at the images ourselves. Especially overnight. And I really stress that for our upcoming residents. Um, the other thing that I want you to remember is don't forget about the ACAs. Um, it's easy to forget about the ACAs because, you know, we don't go after them, but it's just, you know, nice to see it. Um, and, and it's a good practice. You don't want to miss an ACA occlusion because it will already put an end to your story. You know, okay, fine. The patient has an ACA um, uh, stroke and maybe for some reason their, their speech is affected. I don't know, maybe apraxia or like a kinetic mutism or something. Um, so that's important. Um, the other thing that I wanted to make sure I mention is, again, in your first look, you're really looking for things that you're going to go after with a thrombectomy, which is your proximal branches. So let's say in this case, uh, we have a patient who actually does have uh, evidence of a proximal cutoff in the uh, left MCA. So an M1 uh, occlusion suggesting an acute thrombus in the, in the first branch of the MCA uh, on the left side. And that's why they have some weakness and some language dysfunction. So what are we going to do next? So, uh, great question. And before we get there, actually, um, we saw the CT head. The CT head does not show bleed. I'm already calling pharmacy. Um, and then you're requesting TPA. Um, if the patient does not have a weight in the system, um, you want to make sure that this is going to be exactly the first thing the nursing does after the scan. Uh, you order the TPA because by the time you go to the room, the TPA is going to be there and you're, you're going to get to your, your nice goal of within 30 minutes. Again, time is brain and you're entrusted as a neurology resident to save um, someone who, who uh, needs it crucially. Um, so that's, that's how you're going to act on the CT head piece of the information. Obviously, people who have a cutoff, uh, even if you give them TPA, you need to take them to thrombectomy. Um, and right when I see an occlusion, then what I do is I call the, um, is I call the, obviously you're staffing with your stroke attending, don't order the TPA without telling them. You're going to call your radiologist, confirm the cutoff, and then update your attending. They're probably going to be taking a look at it at themselves. Um, and then you're going to do activate uh, stroke um, tier two, uh, you throw them back to me tier two. Um, we have um, a way of going about it in, in Yale, and it's going to be in your survival guide. Um, you essentially have to call someone to activate it, and then you put in um, a communication form, and you put in an order for thrombectomy, and you alert anesthesia. Um, at the same time, your attending is having a conversation with the endovascular interventionalist, and um, uh, it's very satisfying when you do all of this within a within an hour of the patient being here and they're already in this room thrown back to me sweet and you're, you're moving on to your other consults. Uh, it might be a normal day for you, but it, it, it's a huge day for them and their families. So Safa, just to get through some of the nuts and bolts of the timing about how you do this. So uh, one thing I think is very important to emphasize, even if somebody has a lean uh, that is amenable to, to thrombectomy, we still do intravenous thrombolysis. That's the standard of care and we're going to do that anyway, the IV alteplase. And, and just to emphasize what you said, the dosing of that is weight-based. Uh, and so it's very important to have an accurate uh, weight. 
and 10% of that dose is given over the first minute you push that, right? Um, yeah. And then the rest, the remainder is given over the next hour uh, and you're monitoring things. There are some inclusion and exclusion criteria for giving the IV alteplase. Um, the inclusion area between three and four and a half hours you have to have uh, of onset is that, that you, you're giving it. So that's where you're saying you really need to know that last known normal uh, time. Uh, and we need to have that clinical diagnosis of an acute ischemic stroke. And, and we're uh, in our institution giving this to adults. Um, so uh, age over 18. There can be a different process for children and we're, we'll leave that for another uh, discussion some other day. Um, do you want to talk through some of the exclusion criteria and how you sort of sort these out and go through these? Yeah, absolutely. So after I do, um, uh, you know, it's kind of your timing, but you really, as part of the phone calls that you're going to do, and that's why I recommend accessing a computer um, and having a good, your reliable phone in your hands, um, is to call the family. You know, if this is an aphasic, aphasic patient, uh, you want to call their son, you want to call their mother, whoever lives with them, and you want to go over these things, unless the patient is talking, and then you can directly um, go over it with them. Um, um, you already did the part with the evidence of hemorrhage on CT head. Um, you want to ask about any history of bleed. Any history of bleed, they're already out for TPA. Um, just, so just going back to the bleed, you mean any history of intracranial hemorrhage specifically. Other types of bleeding are a different category, but any, any history of intracranial hemorrhage, you're not considering TPA. Is that right? Yeah, 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 sorry, misspoke, intracranial hemorrhage. Systolic blood pressure above 185 and diastolic above, above 110. That's an exclusion criteria, but that's a correctable thing. That's why I said it's important value to keep in mind. If you find that blood pressure, you know, it's not the end of the world. You just need to lower them before you give the TPA. So you can use nicotipine drip. That, that's what I prefer. That's kind of the, our practice here. Um, and then you want to go over surgical history if they have RTL puncture in a non-compressible site within the last seven days, you want to be aware of that. Um, and then a major surgery um, or a big trauma in the last 14 days. Um, a sad thing is that you could have a stroke patient who fell and hit their head. Head trauma, unfortunately, is an exclusion criteria. And I've had that happen before, and it was heartbreaking that I couldn't give them TPA. Um, GIGU um, hemorrhage requiring transfusion within the last 21 days, evidence of active bleeding um, or an acute fracture, um, and then INR of higher than 1.7, that number I just try to remember because if you have a patient on Coumadin, um, being on Coumadin does not automatically exclude them, it's just what their INR is. And then an abnormal PTT, um, platelets of less than 100,000 and a glucose of less than 50 milligram per deciliter. Symptoms clearing or improving, and that's why sometimes I, I do another check on my way back from the CT head. If I know the patient is hemiplegic, and all of a sudden they're raising their arms and legs in the scanner, then I, I do an exam again when I get to the room before I give them TPA. And if you have a huge stroke, it's debatable, and you kind of have to just go through it with the attending. Um, if the NIH scale is um, higher than 25, all from acute reasons. And um, if there's a hypodensity for more than a third of the cerebral hemisphere, because those people are at risk of hemorrhagic conversion, so it's worth a discussion. Right. So you're getting all of that information very quickly. And uh, as you said, the, the one that is correctable would be the elevated systolic or di diastolic blood pressure, and uh, a medication like nicardipine can help with that. Uh, uh, some people use labetalol as well, I guess, as an alternative medication to bring down the blood pressure. 
Um, so then we give the TPA, what are we uh, telling the uh, nursing staff uh, after we give the uh, IVTPA? What, what are we monitoring for? Uh, so you're monitoring for a headache um, symptoms. Um, you also want to make sure your uh, uh, blood pressure goal is less than 180 over 105. You want to make sure that they don't get unnecessary um, procedures. So we limit, um, there's a protocol that, to be honest, I do not have committed to memory just because our ED nurses are very aware of it. Um, even in our order sets, when we admit this, these patients to NICU, you kind of have to be mindful of unnecessary um, uh, things that can make them bleed. Uh, just because they're very vulnerable to that. And, and of course, we have to say that, um, uh, that any case of IV TPA, you are discussing with the stroke attending and they are uh, intimately involved uh, in the process of uh, administering this medication. Absolutely. Also, as a resident at Yale, uh, you need the approval of the ED attending. And then a couple of the complications of the intravenous TPA. Uh, it's a rare complication, but angioedema causing hair, airway issues, and we do have a protocol for that with epinephrine and Benadryl and stopping the IVTPA. Uh, that's an uncommon complication, but something that has been reported. And then all of us worry about hemorrhagic transformation or hemorrhagic conversion. So what do we do about, uh, about that if somebody has hemorrhagic uh, transformation? Uh after TPA, any change in exam um, or like horrible headache, um, you have a very low threshold to get a CT head. Um, and if you have um, hemorrhagic transformation, um, I mean, any patient in our institution, any patient after TPA, they need to be watched in the neuro ICU. Um, if you have hemorrhagic um, transformation, they need to be watched even closer. Um, if your institution does it like a Q2 hour, um, which some people have. Um, and then, you know, you want to monitor their vital, vital signs. They might have um, things like um, cushions triad, um, like the cushion response, uh, which you, you can easily assess clinically. And then if the CT head shows ICH, uh, you could give cryoprecipitate to reverse what you did, you know, the alteplase you gave. Um, in our institution, we do uh, 0.15 units per kilogram, um, which comes out to 10 um, units like just, uh, common dose that we would give. Um, if you want to get fibrinogen, um, if the fibrinogen is a 150 after 15 minutes, uh, then you give another 10 units of the cryoprecipitate. Uh, you give platelets if the patient rece received an aspirin, which is a common thing. Sometimes people think that they're having a stroke and you they take aspirin already. Um, so you're going to reverse that as well. Um, and if they have a transfusion reaction, you also need to be mindful of that. You will immediately stop the platelet infusion because that's a common ir irritation with platelet infusion. Um, you get your neurosurgery friends on board immediately. Um, they could be candidate for um, surgical intervention. Um, and then, like I said, you need, you need co coagulation factors, PT, PTT, INR, fibrinogen, um, after you administer the cryoprecipitate. Um, our normal protocol is that in, if for any bleed, we like a stability scan, uh, which is typically six hours. But if, you know, with the TPA, then you want to look at a window from three to six based on their clinical picture and how big the bleed is. Anything else you wanted to add about uh, doing a stroke code? I mean, I think that was a really nice summary and uh, we haven't taken that long to talk about it. Um, I, practice will make perfect. Uh, and uh, after 
one year of neurology residency, most of our residents here, and I su suspect residents across the country uh, and the world become very proficient at this. The first time is always really scary, but any final tips about what to do uh, so that uh, people can handle it after they drop their coffee and run to the emergency department? <laughs> Trust your gut. Um, you know, obviously you can just follow your gut to make the clinical decision, uh, but you, you kind of need to be connected to your cases, uh, not just like as a homework that you go do this, this, and this, and be told what to do. You really just need to be into it enough because you're going to have your sense later and you're going to be able to uh, wrap up the story much faster and you're going to be able to make recommendations much faster. Trust yourself. You're painting the picture for everybody. Um, and if you're not, uh, things are going to take much longer and it is a delay for patient care in something that's as crucial as a stroke. Time is brain. Yes, ingrain that. Don't, don't let anybody uh, delay you uh, because people would, and some people don't realize the urge as much as we uh, as neurologists do. And, and again, uh, one last thing, a piece of advice I give to <clears throat> uh, new residents everywhere, uh, every year, and I think can be uh, heard everywhere is, uh, don't forget to ask for help. Uh, uh, our residents are training in academic institutions uh, as they are in other places. You have senior residents who are around in-house uh, who are uh, helping you. There are attending physicians who are available uh, to provide guidance and, uh, and should be uh, intimately involved in each of these uh, TPA cases. Uh, at our institution, we have stroke fellows uh, who can help with that as well. Uh, the nursing staff, the ED physicians, there are lots of people that ask for help. Uh, our residents aren't holding up the entire world on their own. Sometimes it feels like that. Uh, and so. Uh, it, going back to trusting your gut, I think people also have to uh, follow the instinct to ask for help when they're not sure. Absolutely. In the beginning, um, it's much safer for everyone to be more conservative. Uh, don't dismiss things that you see just because you don't know what they mean. Um, uh, it, it's much worse to make a mistake because you weren't thorough than to ask a question that might be perceived as very simple. Uh, there's no simple questions or stupid questions in the beginning of your residency. If you're careful at the beginning, you'll get the mastery of things later and, and, and then you, you'll have more knowledge than if you just kind of didn't want to look like you didn't know what you're talking about. That's great. Well, um, maybe briefly we can talk about uh, our protocol for status epilepticus. And I don't think we're necessarily going to be able to uh, talk about this in tremendous detail, but I did want to, um, I think this is something that generates a lot of anxiety, and I did just want to go through this uh, uh, very briefly. So I think what we're going to talk about here is um, convulsive status epilepticus. Not focal status. Yeah, focal status and non-convulsive status, we could, we, I think we'll have to dedicate another um, another podcast to that. Um, but really talking about just the acute care of a patient who shows up with new uh, convulsive episodes. And the first thing I'll say is that pre-hospital care of convulsive status epilepticus has improved tremendously. It obviously, just like everything else, starts with the ABCs and then glucose. Um, appear to have convulsions because of hypoglycemic state. They can appear to have convulsions because of hypoxemia. Uh, and making sure that uh, the vital signs are known, uh, even with an apparent convulsion, can be really important. It can be important to understand whether or not they have syncope uh, or psychogenic attacks, and sometimes that can be obvious from a review of their history. 
And then in pre-hospital care, benzodiazepines are given even before the patients arrive uh, in the emergency department. And there have been clinical trials to show that intramuscular midazolam, for example, can work very quickly in the pre-hospital setting and does not require an IV. Considering the time that's needed for an IV can actually work a little bit faster. But if a patient is seen in the emergency department and already has an IV in, our protocol is to give lorazepam, intravenous lorazepam, which works the fastest. And the dose of that would be uh, an initial four milligrams for convulsive status epilepticus. That seems like a lot, uh, but it is safer to stop the convulsions. Uh, that's going to be associated with lower rates of admission to the intensive care unit uh, than to undertreat. And if they don't respond after another five minutes, then we're going to give another four milligrams of lorazepam. And one of the interesting things, and this may have been frustrating to you, Saf, I know it is for a lot of uh, residents, but the prior definitions of status epilepticus were convulsive seizures lasting 30 minutes or more. But we're never going to wait that long. And in fact, we're not even waiting five minutes. Technically, you know, convulsive status is seizures that continue for five minutes or more or continue uh, or, or stop and start without improvement uh, to baseline consciousness. But we're probably not going to stand there and look at our watch and wait for the full five minutes before stopping this. We're probably going to be asking our uh, nursing staff to get the lorazepam ready uh, and then to likely give it as, as long as it appears that the seizures are not settling down. I don't know if you've had those experiences. Yeah, and I've had them in reverse as well, Dr. Moeller, where um, you find someone intubated just because they had a seizure for like one minute, when we know that their seizures end within one minute and usually self-resolve. And the way we would manage that is, is different because their seizures are already ended. We just have to kind of load them with something. Maybe they're having some low levels of seizure medications. Um, so, so, you know, I don't know, a stylistic, probably Dr. Moeller can, can help me um, give a better description. But like if someone is seizing in front of you and, and it's already like two plus minutes, I'm already drawing the Ativan and by three minutes it's in because leaving them for five minutes is probably way too much. Yeah. And, and, and uh, if somebody's seizure is going to stop, uh, the vast majority of the time uh, in, in studies in uh, epilepsy monitoring units, 90 plus percent of seizures lasted fewer than two minutes. Convulsive seizures, so bilateral tonic-clonic seizures would last less than 120 seconds. People can be sleepy afterward, but that ne isn't necessarily an indication for an airway uh, intubation. In most cases, people will recover quickly, so you want to watch and wait. There is a bit of an art uh, to uh, knowing what to do, but I think in general, if you're called to see somebody convulsing, having the uh, appropriate medication ready and available uh, is, is reasonable. And if you give it, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to need a definitive airway. In fact, in many cases, when somebody gets two or four milligrams of intravenous lorazepam, uh, they, they will continue, continue to protect their airway and will be fine otherwise. There are patients who will continue to have convulsions after the second dose of lorazepam. So after they have received eight milligrams of lorazepam. Those patients, and of course we've done the ABCs, we've given the thiamine and, and glucose if needed. We've made sure there's no other underlying neurological cause. We've looked for reversible causes in terms of electrolyte disturbances, etc. And so in parallel with treating the status epilepticus, we're going to be uh, looking for the etiology of the status epilepticus. In some cases, it's going to be people with epilepsy, but in other cases, it's not. And we want to make sure that we're not missing treating uh, central nervous system infections, for example, that we're not missing treating 
severe electrolyte derangements, that we're not missing treating hypoglycemia, uh, et cetera. Posterior reversible leukoencephalopathy syndrome, uh, these types of things. So in parallel with the treatment, we're doing investigations. And, uh, and Safi, you know uh, me well enough to know that I have a very low threshold for empiric treatment for brain infections. And that generally I'll give that treatment if I have any suspicion, even before we get a lumbar puncture, if it seems urgent, because uh, early treatment of meningitis and viral encephalitis is associated with much better outcomes. In doubt, yeah. just treat, I guess. <laughs> yeah, if in doubt, just treat. You can always give a, a dose of these medications and then, uh, and then ask questions later. You've, you're doing all of that. The person is still convulsing. What's the next step? What are we going to do then? So we've, we've ordered the imaging. We're examining the patient. We're getting the history. We've done the blood work. We've given eight milligrams of lorazepam in two doses, and the person's still convulsing. What are we going to do then? I love Capra, so I just go for Capra. Uh, we have other options, and the dose you want to give is 60 milligram uh, per kilogram uh, over 15 minutes uh, with a maximum dose of 4,500. Um, the other options you have is phosphenitoin, which is 20 milligram per kilogram IV, um, and the Depakote 40 milligram per kilogram IV as well as your other options. Um, it helps sometimes. Capra, I choose it first just because it doesn't have much of a bleeding risk or much of a hypotensive risk or any of that. Um, so I usually would prefer that, um, but obviously those are other options. And usually when we're giving the non-sedating anti-seizure drugs, and so in our protocol currently as it exists, we have Valproate, uh, phenytoin and levetiracetam, and there was a recent trial to show that they're about equivalent in terms of effectiveness for acute status epilepticus. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any benefit for one over the other, but we can consider comorbidities uh, as a consideration when we're giving them. Uh, but we uh, give these medications, and then uh, at the same time, if somebody's still seizing, we may consider bringing, we're likely to consider bringing them to an intensive care unit, uh, medical or neurological intensive care unit, depending on the cause of the seizure, uh, getting a definitive airway and using continuous infusions of sedating medications like midazolam, like propofol, things like that uh, to settle things down. And then of course, at that point, if the person stops convulsing, there's no, there's no certainty that they aren't having uh, non-convulsive seizures, that they're not having electrographic status epilepticus and of course, that's when we often go to the continuous EEG uh, monitoring to make sure. For convulsive status epilepticus, again, to be very clear, we're not talking about non-convulsive status epilepticus, but for convulsive status epilepticus, starting with the ABCs, thinking about the etiology and making sure we're not missing reversible causes. I didn't mention alcohol withdrawal, uh, brain infections, uh, metabolic derangements, et cetera. Then giving lorazepam for if that doesn't work, giving another four intravenously. If they don't have an IV, you could give midazolam intramuscularly. That would be another alternative. And then uh, from there, we're gonna go to the non-sedating anti-seizure drugs and uh, any of the intravenously available ones are reasonable in our protocol as it exists. Those include valproate, phosphenitoin, and levetiracetam. Then considering continuous infusions and sedating medications like midazolam or propofol are very reasonable. Uh, and then if you go beyond that, uh, there's a lot of different options, which could include pentobarbital, ketamine, uh, or other long-term sedating medications. And some of that will depend on the cause of the seizures, and some of that will depend on the 
personal preferences of the treating physician. Focal status were less aggressive and we'll get to that in a different podcast, but I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we tend to be less aggressive depending on the cause of uh, focal status, but we're really talking about the acute treatment of acute convulsive status epilepticus. Well, I think that was wonderful. I think that was good to just get the uh, juices flowing a little bit for new residents across the country to think about some of the things that they're going to be starting to work on, to think about just those first few steps, those reflexive steps in terms of acutely managing these things. And and on additional podcasts, we'll start to flesh out some of the more detailed aspects of treatment of, uh, of acute neurological emergencies. Awesome.